Welcome to the Crosswalk Community Church Podcast. Today we are remembering what God has done and using that to lead us to a trust, to trust him or to a trusting faith. We are looking at specific examples from Jesus' life to see how trusting him changes us and changes our faith. So the goal of this sermon in particular is I want to show you the three things that happen to your faith when it turns into a trusting faith, when it changes from what it was to what it can be. That's the goal for today. Whether we accomplish that or not, we'll see. But So let's pray. Grace Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for just uh, allowing us to gather here together today, Lord. We just pray that you would be with us to open our hearts and minds, Lord, to be able to hear your word. And we just pray, Father, that we could honor you with our thoughts and our minds and, and our actions, Lord, as we leave here today. We love you. We thank you. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. So there were these two brothers, and they lived in this small town. And they were just what you would call the worst kind of people. They stole, they lied, they cheated people, they blackmailed them, they embezzled, anything you could say. These two brothers were just the worst type of people you could think of. And they lived in the small town, so pretty much everybody in the town knew them and had at some point been lied to or lost money to them or, or something like that. Well, one of them dies, so the other brother goes to the local pastor, and he says, Hey, listen, I'm going to bring everyone here for the funeral, and I want you to say all these nice things about my brother, but above all else, you must call my brother a saint. And the pastor's like, well, I can't. I'd be lying. Your brother was a terrible person. Everybody knows that. The brother says, no, 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 you don't understand. You're going to say a bunch of nice things about him, but above all else, you must call my brother a saint. If you don't do it, you'll regret it. And he leaves. So the pastor's up all night worried because he's like, no, this guy's trouble. I don't want to make a, <clears throat> I don't want to make a big deal about it, but at the same time, I can't lie to my congregation. I can't lie to all these people. So he's up all night about it. And the, the next day comes. And he, the, the brother that's alive gets everybody in town to come to the funeral. The brother's sitting right up in the front row. pastor gets up here and he says, We're gathered here today to mourn the loss of one of our beloved citizens. And then he pauses and shakes his head and he says, You know, I was asked to do something today, but it's not right. I just can't do it. This man, he points to the casket, was the worst person in the entire world. And he just goes off on him. He just goes off saying everything about this brother that was true, that everybody knew, but the brother had wanted him to say something different. Well, he's going off on him saying, this person was a cheater, a liar, a thief, everything you can think of. Everybody in the crowd's loving him. They're cheering, they're, they're clapping like crazy. The brother in the front row, is, his steam's coming out of his ears. He's so mad, he can't believe it. So the pastor, towards the end, he says, this person was without a doubt the worst person in the entire world. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> So, trust is a uh, funny thing. It, it, it's depend, dependent upon a lot of who we put your trust in. And our main scripture today is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, uh, verses 32 through 36. We're going to jump to some other ones, but this is where we're going to come back from. This is the, the core of what we're going to be talking about today. So, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 36 is the last part of a section of scriptures that goes back to verse 19. This section is normally called the full assurance of faith. The first two sections of the scripture are warning from the author to believers about renouncement or ignorance of their faith, while this section, starting at verse 32, gives the assurance that with their faith they will persevere as they did before by trusting in God. 
So the question I have for you today is, why do we need a trusting faith? Why is just simple acknowledgement in God not enough? Why do you have to trust him? Why is that a requirement? Or why does God say to do that? Well, let's find out. Verse 32 says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So already, right from the beginning, but recall the former days. So we're looking back, remember, we're looking back to lead us forward. <clears throat> after you were enlightened, so the author's talking about after you were saved. Recall the former days, recall the past, after your conversion, after you were saved. Post-conversion is when the hardship started, is what he's saying. You endured a hard struggle with suffering. This is the end of the verse. Becoming a Christian signifies, as we all know, that trial and tribulation is now a part of your life. Verse 33 says, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Publicly exposed probably means that this type of hardship that these people were going through was officially sanctioned by public authorities. We think we have it rough now, but we are actually very blessed to live in a country that legally says that we are allowed to share our faith. Never forget that, that you have that right as a citizen of this country to do that. That was not always the case for the church. There was not just persecution from other people, but officially sanctioned persecution by the governing bodies that said, no, you can't do this, and would seek these people out and um, arrest them and throw them in jail. So just remember that this type of hardship that we face today, we could have it a lot worse, and it's been worse before. So your faith moves to a trusting faith when the reality of trial and hardship abruptly signify a change in your life. That change requires a different response from us spiritually to be able to navigate, survive, and prosper as believers in Christ in a world where demonic and worldly persecution abounds. To simply have faith in Jesus Christ as Lord must evolve to having trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord. Let me say that again. To simply have faith in Jesus Christ as Lord must evolve to having trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord. Dealing with hardship changes once that change in you has been made. Once you have switched to a trusting faith, how you deal with hardship changes. Once Jesus is your Lord and you trust him with your life, your faith is solidified. So the first thing that happens to your faith when it turns to a trusting faith is that it is solidified. What does solidified mean? It means your faith is made stronger and more resilient. When something is stronger and more resilient, it is better equipped to handle both kinds of stress. Instantaneous stress and ongoing or recurring stress. So Saturday mornings, I have this routine where Ashley has dance on Saturday mornings. So it's usually just me and my daughter just kind of chilling at home. And one of the things we do is we normally watch the show called Modern Marvels on the History Channel. It's a great show. If you don't know what it's about, basically they just take a random topic and they just feed you a bunch of information about it. I live for it. It's great. It's awesome. The episode I was watching not too long ago was about wood. It was about lumber. And one of the sections of the episode, they talked about uh, timber pilings. And what a timber piling is, is it's about a 50-foot pole that's been pressure treated with certain chemicals to make it withstand hardship better. And what I learned is that if you're building buildings or whatever, some sort of construction in places like New Orleans, Louisiana, where it's very swampy, the ground isn't very good, what they do is they take these 50-foot poles, they shoot them into the ground, usually about 40 feet deep or so. They do like 100 of them. They connect them all together, and then on top of those wood pilings, you build a foundation for, say, a school or something. So in places like that, buildings are actually held up by basically telephone poles, when you think about it. That's pretty cool. 
The piling can survive the instant stress of being forced 40 feet into the ground while also being able to support the weight and stress of holding up a school for probably longer than all of us will be alive, precisely because it's been solidified. Your faith can handle the stress of an instant, say a car crash, or say losing a job, while also handling the stress of something more ongoing, say cancer, or say financial hardship. Those are two different kinds of stress. If your faith is solidified, you can handle both of them. You're just like one of those timber piling. When it's solidified by trust. When something is solidified, it is also more sustaining than something that isn't. It will simply last longer. When you trust in God, when Jesus Christ is your Lord, as opposed to just Lord in general, you are better protected from the fear and worry of change. Change is never easy and is normally scary. Most people in here probably don't like change very much, right? We get comfortable. We like what we know. It is the voice in your head that says that what is now is comfortable and what will be could be worse. When your faith is solidified, that voice lessens. It's not there anymore. The fear of what's to come is less because you now know that you are better prepared to handle it. By telling God, I trust you, he has solidified your faith. You are stronger, your faith is more sustainable, and it is more resilient to stress and prepares you to better handle change. Now notice I never said that stress or change will go away or disappear. It's there and it always will be. Scripture is very clear that following Jesus means your life will have particular hardship. We know this to be true, don't we? This is the beauty of following Jesus, though. We are better able to follow him as he endured hardship himself. He did not come to dazzle us with signs and enlighten us with philosophy. No, he actually rolled up his sleeves and he did the work. He suffered as well, and when faced with the hardship he knew that was coming, he goes before God and he prays asking that this burden be lifted from him. Our first example from Scripture is Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 39. I'm just going to kind of read through these as fast as I can because I want to keep you guys here all day. So Matthew 26, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prays this prayer three times in the garden. And he's so full of anxiety and anguish, he even develops a condition called hematidrosis, which is when people are suffering from extreme stress, they pop the capillary blood vessels in their head and face, and your blood mixes with your sweat. So it looks like you're actually sweating blood. Luke has recorded Jesus as being like this. That's how much anguish he was in at that moment. But what does he do? Does he give up? Does he quit? Does he find another way? No, he says, God, if this is your will, then let it be done, and I will accept it. And that's what he does. He leaves the guard knowing that God's will be done and trusts that God will be with him through it all. Trial and hardship escape no one in the faith, not even our Savior, and that's the point. He himself has gone through this. Trusting in God and following Jesus' example and making him your Lord is the only way to overcome it. So now we're going to go back to Hebrews. Chapter 10. Verse 34, it says... For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The second thing that happens to your faith when it evolves into a trusting faith is that your faith is amplified. I'll give you an example of this. My, my dad's here today. My dad's a bit of a painter. He used to paint a lot. 
um, when I was younger. And he's very good, actually, at painting and drawing, drafting, all that right brain stuff. And I can assure you that that did not pass down to me. I draw a mean stick figure, but other than that, I'm pretty hopeless when it comes to using any of that. But my dad, has an, he had an easel, and he would always paint on one of those square canvas that you, would, you can buy from Crash 2000 or something like that. And I would, sometimes I'd watch him paint. But the fact of the matter is that when you're painting, when you're drawing, you start with a canvas. Now, whether it's an actual canvas material, whether it's a wall, whether it's a tree, it doesn't matter. The canvas is the foundation of the painting. The canvas is your faith. That is what it is. When you add things like color and texture and patterns, when you add trust to your faith, your faith turns from a canvas into a masterpiece. Now, it's still a canvas, all right? Painting that's a masterpiece still is a canvas. Your faith is still there, and it's still yours. It's entirely yours to do with. But when you add trust to it, you take something from a simple canvas and you turn it into a masterpiece. You have taken your faith and you have turned it into a better version of itself. The best distinction an amplified faith makes is the transition from belief of God to belief in God. Trust is what fuels that transition. An amplified faith puts Jesus at his rightful position, Lord. Now we've touched on this briefly, but let's really look at it. Lord is a word that gets thrown hand-in-hand hand with Jesus from the very beginning, and rightfully so. But what does it mean to give Jesus that title? What are you saying when you say that Jesus is my Lord and Savior? you ever thought about that? What you're saying when you say that to people? What does it mean to call him Lord or to say that he's your Lord? Lord, to me, says one thing above all else. It says authority. When we say Jesus is our Lord, we are proclaiming his authority over us. We are saying that Christ is the first and foremost of our lives and therefore lays claim to what we have. But does our life reflect this? Do we practice what we preach in this regard? Do we really give Jesus control over every aspect of our life? Your family? Your children? Your job? Your marriage? Your money? Do you give Jesus control over that? This is where trust again feels a transition from merely saying Jesus is our Lord to allowing him to be such. We don't give important things up easily, and certainly not to someone we don't trust. And this sends us back to Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. Beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me, I'm sinking. That's not in there, I just had to Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. There are two things to notice in this section of verses. First, in the middle of a storm, Jesus walks on water. Then, when he gets into the boat, the storm ceases. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus calms the storms in your life? I love when people say that. It's, it's true. But is that what this verse is saying? Is it saying Jesus calms the storms in your life? Or is it Jesus displaying dominion over nature? 
Is it him showing that even the winds and the waves are give him authority, that he has control over it? Jesus displays dominion and authority over nature to the point where the disciples rightfully know he is the Son of God. They proclaim it. One of the first examples of his disciples saying that out loud is in this section of Scripture. <clears throat> it's a display of his authority. Don't overthink it. When Jesus calms the winds and the waves, it's a display of his authority. It's him showing people who he is. The second thing to notice here is Peter. Peter thinks he sees Jesus out on the water and says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Now, remember, Peter was a fisherman, all right? That was his livelihood, and more than likely, it was his father's livelihood, because at that time, unless you went to the priesthood, you did what your father did. So for his entire life, Peter has been a fisherman. He's lived in and around the water. That's his livelihood. He spent all of his life there. These people weren't stupid. They know you can't walk on water. So all it takes is for one word for Peter to throw all that away and leave the boat. Come. That's all it takes. It's not so much the word, but the messenger that brings Peter out. It's who said it. Peter trusted Jesus enough to defy everything he knew about the natural world. And in that moment, placed Jesus in control of his life, his safety. And he steps out into the water. It's only when his fear overcame his faith that he started to sink. This shows us two things, church. One, that when you trust in Jesus, you can accomplish wonders. And second, that the decision to trust him is entirely your decision and rests on your faith and trusting him. So when that starts to fade, you're nothing more than a rock trying to float in a storm. Making Jesus your Lord, again, I emphasize the Lord, your, and willfully giving control of your life to him helps you to acknowledge that what your life encompasses, your relationships, your skills, your possessions, they're all a testament to him and his authority. This is why the author of Hebrews says you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property in verse 34. Because when you give what you have to Jesus anyways, the nature of your life and your stuff changes. What you have becomes or turns into what you've been given. Your possessions become blessings, and just as you trust there is good reason for God blessing you with them, you also trust that there is a good reason that they are removed from your life in one way or another. The attachment to them has changed. The early church was never big on possessions, and I feel Jesus was very clear on them as well. They themselves aren't inherently bad, and God sometimes blesses us with nice things. But they lack in comparison to a greater possession that Jesus cares so much more about. If you go back to the end of verse 34 in Hebrews, it says, Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. A trusting faith is amplified as our perspective is changed when we trust in Jesus. Instead of the constant worry about day-to-day -day things, we know that our faith will be rewarded in the end with the greatest possession of all to be with our Lord and Savior in his kingdom. Once you acknowledge that, once you make that paramount in your life, it changes how you view stuff. It changes how you view everything. Let us trust in Jesus, not just with our words, but with our lives, giving him complete control over what makes us and allowing what makes us us and allowing him to lead us under the water closer than ever. Verse 35 in Hebrews. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The third and final thing that happens to your faith is that a trusting faith is a faith that is justified. It's easy to say, oh, just trust in Jesus this and trust in Jesus that, without even knowing if you should, or besides dealing with hardship. Because we said, why should you trust in Jesus? We said it helps you deal with hardship. But why else besides that? Maybe you don't have hardship in your life. 
Maybe everything's hunky-dory. You still should trust him. Why? Why should I place the entirety of my life in someone else's hands? It's my life. I should be able to do with it what I want, right? We don't have that mentality in this country at all, do we? The first thing to realize is that this question, like any question about Jesus, is okay to ask. Jesus answered questions. It's something that he's known for, actually. While a multitude of apologetical and theological insight can be taken from his dialogue with others, it's important to not overlook the fact that when, God, that when the God of the universe walked this earth with his creation, he didn't balk or waste, time, waste the opportunity to answer honest speculation. I think that's amazing. The man who has all the answers took the time to share it with us. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. This is John the Baptist, remember. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is approached by two of John the Baptist's disciples who ask on John's behalf, Is Jesus really the one Messiah that was prophesied to come? Honest question, an honest speculation by John. Notice that Jesus does not rebuke John or criticize him for asking but simply responds with what he knew John would need to understand to answer the question. We're going to skip now to John, the disciple John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Rapid fire. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails I, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Real quick, you know, they always used to do that thing or that little test in study groups. They said, which disciple are you most like? I'm Thomas. Just show me the evidence. That's all I want to see. It's not always a good thing, but I admit it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here we see Jesus do the same thing. Someone, in this case Thomas, was uncertain and questioned something about him. Now in this scenario, you'll notice Jesus does try Thomas for not having the same level of faith as others who believed without seeing. But remember, Thomas was with Jesus throughout his ministry. He should have known better is what he's saying. At the time of John the Baptist's question, he was in prison, and he was probably certain his life was close to an end. So the extra level of instruction was necessary. But the point of this scripture is that Jesus still lets Thomas touch him. He lets him specifically do what Thomas said he had to do. He allowed Thomas to place his hands on the marks where the nails were. He didn't rebuke Thomas where he stood or cast him away. No, he simply instructed him of his spiritual shortcoming and answered his speculation. God will answer if you honestly search for him. He will give you what you need if you want to come to him. But the decision is yours. He won't force you. The question you should ask isn't just why I should trust my life to Jesus, but should I? And this leads us to our final section of extra scripture. 
I'm sure it's a verse. It's, it's a very unknown verse. You guys have never heard it before. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You guys probably never heard that before, right? Trusting your life to Jesus, letting your faith evolve into a trusting faith in God is justified ultimately because trust in God is a reasonable and valid choice to make. Verse 16 is arguably the most popular verse in all of scripture. It's also arguably the most well-known. Everybody's here, even if you're not a Christian, you've heard John 3.16 somewhere. It's a statement verse for all of Christianity as it sums up what God has done in action for us, but also explains his motivation for doing so at the same time. Verse 16 explains why trust in God is a reasonable thing, because he has shown what lengths he is willing to go in order to save you and me. If you get nothing out of this sermon, just listen to these next three sentences. If you ever need to know how God feels about you, look to the cross. If you ever need to know what God will do for you, look to the cross. And if you ever need to know why trust in God is a reasonable thing, look to the cross. God says, trust in me with your life, because if the cross is any measure of what I'm willing to do to have a relationship with you, then that choice to trust me is certainly justified. Well, that's it. It's, it's, it's perfect. Happy ending. We can go home now. I didn't even pass out. Awesome. Wait. We're not done. <laughs> If you look in your Bible, as beautiful as verse 16 is, it's not the end of the story. If you look in your Bible, you'll notice verse 16 is the start of a new paragraph. There's stuff after it. In the early 13th century, each book of the Bible was divided into chapters. In the, in the mid-16th century, the books were further divided into verses. This just helped people read and memorize it more. Well, John was written at the latest, at the very end of the first century. That's a lot of time. That's way before the 13th century. That's why something like context is so important when you're reading Scripture. If you actually look at the page in your Bible where the Scripture is, you'll notice that verse 16 is the start of a new paragraph. It's the start of a new thought for the author, in this case, John. This paragraph goes until verse 21, which means that verses 16 to 21 is meant to be read together as a singular point that is being made by John, just as reading any paragraph in any written document is meant to be read. So, let's continue. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Oh, I like that more good stuff. Verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Well, that is not nearly as happy and hunky-dory as the other two verses. That says something. So your faith, you see, your faith evolving into a trusting faith is justified not just because that choice is reasonable, but also because it's valid. As we just read, God has done a tremendous thing. He's given us this tremendous gift that shows us we are justified in trusting in him. But as we also just read, where that choice to accept that gift has a result, the choice not to has a result as well. Our choice to trust in God is valid because God is equal. He is impartial. He is unbiased. God is just. The result of your choice to accept his gift is entirely because of your choice. Because since God is fair, that means he is just. And because he is respectful of your freedom to make that choice, God will not force you into any decision involving him. As he knows, any decision made as a result of force is incapable, incapable of producing love. Force and love do not 
It's a contradiction. You can't force someone to love you, right? Love at its core requires choice. You choose to love somebody. Sometimes you make stupid decisions and you realize you didn't really love that person, but you still made that decision. It's choice. God says, choose to love me. I cannot force you to do it, and I will not force you to do it. Choice is always yours. God wants each and every one of us, and he wants us to love him. He wants us to, but he will not force us to. The decision is always ours. Our decision to accept that gift of salvation he has given us or not has a result. Either way, either side of the coin has an outcome. You don't just not make the decision and then sit back and just let it happen. Christianity is true. Something's still going to happen to you if you decided not to make the decision. Our decision to accept that gift of salvation he has given us or not has a result because God is just. He is fair. That decision is always freely ours to make, free from coercion, because God is fair. God is just and fair, and therefore placing your trust in him is a valid thing to do. So what did we learn today? We've looked back at our Lord and Savior and seen examples from his life that allow your faith to evolve into a trusting faith. It changes you. It changes your faith. It is a better version of your faith, and therefore it changes you, the subject of it. A faith that is a trusting faith is a faith that is solidified. It is made stronger, more resilient, and more sustaining. A faith that is a trusting faith is a faith that is amplified. It is a faith that rightfully recognizes and actualizes Jesus as the Lord or the authority over all aspects of our life. A faith that is a trusting faith is a faith that is justified. It is a faith that understands that trust in God is reasonable and valid because of the great sacrifice he has made for us and by which the nature he allows us to accept it as a gift of love. Not just the what he did, it's how he lets you get there. So as you leave here today, attempt to allow your faith to be a more trusting faith. Maybe you've already done that. Maybe you've already decided, I give complete control of my life to Jesus Christ. That's great. Tell other people about it. Show them what it does for you. That it's, that's what it's always meant to be. That's what our relationship with God was always intended to be. Pesky things like sin and other stuff like that have caused us to fall away where we have to get back to that. This is what God wants. God wants you in your entirety. He doesn't want half of you. He doesn't want some of you. He wants all or nothing. But again, it's up to you. We will not force you because God loves you that much. To give to God and to give to our Lord and Savior what is rightfully his, give him our trust. This podcast has been recorded live at Crosswalk Community Church. Services are held every Sunday at 10 a.m. 925 South Elgin Road in Monroe, Michigan. Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Community Church Podcast.